Hello and welcome to my impromptu studio from which I'm going to deliver the fifth lecture in this cycle on Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. And this lecture is going to be on Diaghilev's interaction with French culture. Now, of course, initially the idea behind the Russian seasons was to represent Russian culture, to sell it, to market it to Paris and beyond. But uh, as years went by and even decades, Russia's uh, Diaghilev's ties with Russia became weaker and weaker, especially after the revolution of 1917. Uh, so he found new friends, uh, new partners, new uh, patrons, which is very important. His company became much more cosmopolitan than before, even not all the dancers were Russian. So uh, we will look at how the rich uh, cultural landscape of France, of his host country, was feeding into what the Ballerus were producing. And my exhibit one is a very exciting piece. It's called L'après-midi d'enfant, afternoon rest of a fawn and it's a ballet from 1912 but it's based on an existing piece of music by Claude Debussy so great French impressionist he was still alive at the time but the piece dates from 1894 and moreover it's based on a poem by the French symbolist poet uh, Stéphane Mallarmé and the poem itself comes from even 20 years previous and you can see uh, here the illustrations to the first publication of 1876. It's the afternoon reveries of a fawn who, as you can see, is looking through the reeds at the bathing nymphs. He feasts on grapes and uh, recalls his pursuits of these charming nymphs. Uh, the language is very opaque. It's very difficult to follow what's actually going on, but it's more like word music. You know, it's very um, enticing. And I've chosen one passage for you, which I think more or less makes sense. And uh, even in translation, it's a great translation. So I'm going to read it out to you. And this is the phone speaking. Too bad. Others will lead me to happiness by their tresses knotted to the horns upon my brow. You, my passion, know that purple and perfectly ripe, every pomegranate bursts open and murmurs with bees. And our blood, in love with whoever will seize it, flows for the whole eternal swarm of desire. So Debussy's piece is not following the plot of it, if there is any plot, in any detail. It's just presenting you the atmosphere, which is, so it's very slow, it's very languorous. The themes are deliberately vague. It's all about the play of colors, which are kind of flowing into each other. And the pulse is almost imperceptible. So uh, you lose the sense of time. And there is a little, um, a, a little gesture towards uh, the more concrete reality, and that's the sound of the flute that the fawn is supposed to be playing a reed pipe. Uh, yeah, so uh, there, there are moments of agitation, you know, portraying presumably his pursuits, but also this middle section with a slightly more palpable and sort of satisfying theme. Uh, and uh, the set uh, was designed by Leon Baxt, who was designing quite a lot at that time for Diaghilev. You can see it's extremely beautiful and it's almost like an abstract painting. 
because although you can see it's a grove and there are um, leaves and grass, but everything is flowing into each other like Debussy's piece. It's, I think it's very much inspired by this musical Im impressionism as well. Uh, now let's have a look at uh, these costume designs and you can see that they were influenced by Greek vases and also by those Egyptian and Assyrian frescoes that he was able to see in the Louvre. And it's an interesting thing that the design concept of uh, figures being seen from the side yeah, in profile then becomes the main choreographical concept as well and influences Nijinsky. But uh, just uh, to explain what you see on the right hand side here on your screen, it's a figure of the fawn in sexual ecstasy at the very end after he has been playing with the nymph scarf because that's the only thing that he's actually getting. So the choreography was produced by Nijinsky and it was Nijinsky's first experiment. It was done in secret from Michel Fokin, who was at the time the main uh, choreographer of um, uh, of the uh, the company, uh, although I can't really imagine how it was <laughs> how it was it could have been done in secret because there were ninety rehearsals required for this twelve minute piece. Why so many? Yeah, because uh, the concept was so novel, and I think Nijinsky had quite a bit of difficulty to explain explaining to uh, to the dancers that they had to dance not to the music, but through the music, so to speak. In other words, uh, the movement didn't quite try to reflect the music, to visualize it as it was doing in Fokin's choreographies. But on the contrary, it was moving in parallel or in counterpoint, so to speak. So that was quite a difficult thing. And the movements themselves were also very unusual. There was no convention to fall back on. Yeah, they, for the fawn, they were very animalistic. And for the nymphs, they were kind of walking through the stage, but not to the music. And yet they had to do it uh, in, in harmony with each other. Yeah, so, uh, so what does it really uh, look like? Uh, this is uh, uh, the backstage photo of Nijinsky as Fawn, which of course is absolutely uh, iconic. Uh, his very explicit costume, again, yeah, a whiff of scandal about that, and this incredible pose that he designed for his um, animal-like character. And uh, uh, I would like you to, to show you now how it actually looks uh, um, in real time. So through this wonderful reconstruction by Geoffrey Bally and Rudolf Nureyev as Fawn, you can almost imagine that you're seeing Nijinsky because Nureyev is just as strong a personality. And I think he's absolutely astonishing here, even if the quality might not be so good. But just have a look how this choreographical concept works in practice.
uh, how did the audience receive this? Um, well, in the dress rehearsal, apparently there was no applause at the end. And who knows why that was? Maybe because they were scandalized by this final gesture, uh, which is autoeroticist, and they didn't know what to do. But anyway, the manager, Gabriela Struck, came out on stage and said, um, let's watch it again. So they actually performed the whole ballet again and then reception was warmer and the same thing happened at the premiere it was performed twice which is quite amazing to think yeah so they were really thinking that this is such a modern such an unusual innovative piece of art that it has to be seen at least twice so that you can start um, realizing that all these mismatches between movement and uh, music are actually deliberate and start appreciating this very particular beauty of this piece. Now we are actually uh, going to do something similar. I'm going to show you two versions of the same scene and this is the middle section of the of the piece where um, I suppose the fawn and the nymph are dancing a kind of pas de deux, a very strange pas de deux it is. But you will also see that although Nijinsky actually recorded his choreography for this piece, that there are some um, elements of it which will remain the same in different productions and others which will be different, which will be improvised around it. So it's very interesting to compare and see which one you like better. So that was the uh, uh, Russian production, and this is uh, a, a German production from Bavaria.
they're very different, aren't they? And uh, I don't know, sometimes it seems that less is more, but that's just my own uh, feeling about this. So Diaghilev actually felt that he had to elicit some positive responses from important artists uh, who attended the performances. So he asked for letters from Odilon de Rodin, for example, yeah, the uh, artist and the sculptor Auguste Rodin. Uh, and uh, you can see the quotes here that uh, Rodin says, well, if Mallarmé had been alive, he would have loved that, which is, uh, you know, possibly a risky supposition. Uh, and Rodin says, well, I would like to sculpt Nijinsky. He looks like such a picture. Yeah, it's amazing. And indeed, people were sculpting Nijinsky. And this is a famous bust of him as a fawn from 1913. So, uh, well, I think you you should definitely see the whole thing um, if you hadn't seen it before. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful artifact of 20th century, of the 20th century uh, that you can't miss. Uh, in my second chapter, we will talk briefly about the first ballet commissioned by Diaghilev from a French composer, so commissioned now, and that was Maurice Ravel. The commission came very early in 1909, but the ballet, which is Daphne et Chloe, was premiered only in 1912. Yeah, so just after, just a few days after l'après-midi. And uh, in this picture, you see Nijinsky and Ravel reading the score of Daphnis, which I think is a lovely image reminding you that Nijinsky actually was proficient at the piano, very musical. But Daphnis turned out to be an unhappy story. Ravel took too long over it and uh, Diaghilev would go so annoyed when he couldn't have it even ready by 1911. Uh, and he actually produced a replacement Greek ballet. Uh, it seems just to spite Ravel. Uh, I think it was supposed to act as a kind of spoiler. And that ballet is Narcisse uh, Echo. Yeah, Narcisse, Narcisse and Echo. Um, and it's based on Ovid's Metamorphosis with the music by Nikolai Cherepnin, who of course was Diaghilev's staff composer. And Cherepnin had to write this score very quickly in the style of French Impressionism. And it seems to be that there's some, some kind of foul play going on because he might have already seen the early print of Ravel's first version of the score in the piano score. And he might have known various things that Travel was doing. And basically he was imitating that work and preempting it and uh, acting as a spoiler. Uh, see what you think. Um, I will play you a little bit from Narcisse. It's just the music. We don't have the ballet hasn't been preserved, but this is just the music. And it has this world, wordless uh, chorus.
And and here is Ravel. What are the chances that that uh, Chirpnian didn't know about that Ravel already had this idea of a wordless choir? Well, that's just my my supposition, I guess. But the set as well, um, actually, they had to use the set that was prepared for Daphne as for Narcisse, it seems, or at least, uh, you know, they are actually quite similar, as you can see, um, both by Bucks. And the costumes as well, these, these are for Daphne and Chloe, these are for Narcisse. Uh, of course, Nijinsky was Narcisse himself, and uh, this is a very beautiful picture of him. But nevertheless, the, ba the ballet actually wasn't, uh, wasn't successful. I'm talking about both, actually, in this case, because the true spoiler for Daphnis uh, proved to be actually L'Après-Midi, which was premiered just before it. And Daphnis paled in comparison, because uh, Fokin's choreography already looked more familiar. And it was probably just one Greek ballet too many. But Narcisse also fell out of the repertoire. Uh, much later, however, uh, the choreographer Kasyan Galizovsky produced uh, his own version of the choreography uh, to Cheripnin's score. And uh, I would like to share this with you, this clip that, strictly speaking, doesn't have much to do with the original Narcisse, apart from the music, but I just find this performance by Vladimir Vasiliev absolutely spectacular. I'm wondering, actually, uh, whether this was influenced by L'Après-Midi as well. Yeah, his preening gestures, he looks a little bit like Nijinsky as Fawn as well. Okay, on we go uh, to our next chapter. And my third chapter is about uh, another commission from a French composer, this time from Debussy himself. Even though Debussy disliked the choreography of L'Après-Midi, he agreed to write a new score and the title of it is simply Jeu Games. Uh, the inspiration for the idea came from a game of tennis that Diaghilev um, and Nijinsky saw in Bedford Square uh, in London. 
And Nijinsky's original concept was that, this is how he described, there should be no corps de ballet, no ensembles, no variations, no pas de deux, only boys and girls in flannels and rhythmic movements. Uh, he originally envisaged a tennis game being interrupted by the crashing of an airplane. Now, the airplane actually didn't make it to the final version, but it's very important. You will see why. The plot uh, is also partly developing uh, Diaghilev's private fantasy, portraying male homosexuality. Uh, but he couldn't do that on stage, so uh, it, this was taboo. So it's replaced uh, by, by a portrayal of two girls who also seems to be quite intimate with each other. And when we think of that, Marcel Proust did the same in his uh, very famous novel, yeah, in search of lost time, uh, and it's very, uh, very possible that he was actually influenced by uh, Diaghilev's ballets. The scenario is minimal. Um, the idea of games instead of traditional balletic numbers is actually similar to the Rite of Spring, yeah, because there are also quite a lot of numbers there that are also called jeux, yeah, games. Uh, Debussy described this scenario in, in the following way. In this scenario, there is a park, a tennis court, there is a chance meeting of two girls and a young man seeking a lost ball, an external mysterious landscape, and together with this, a suggestion of something sinister in the darkening shadows of night. So this very simple scenario prompted Debussy to also do something innovative, something they had, hadn't quite done before to this extent. It's a very unusually fluid score. It has more than 60 tempo markings. So it's a succession of brief musical moments. Some uh, actually claim that this is just as innovative as the Rite of Spring. And you have to remember that they appeared together in 1913, side by side in the Diaghilev season. It's quite amazing to think of that. Debussy uh, was describing, used to describe his music in various ways. For example, in 1907, he wrote to his publisher, music is not in essence a thing which can flow within a rigorous and traditional form. It is all about colors and rhythmically organized time. So this is what we have in this piece, colors and rhythmically organized time, always changing. And uh, there is also a nice quote on his own creative process during writing this piece. Cinematography of instance through which the author moved while he was composing this piece. So we have to remember yeah, that this was the time when cinema was a very new medium and everyone was starting to think in those terms as well. So um, the connection with cinematography is another tie to modernity. The choreography, which was lost and reconstructed by Millicent Hodson um, from very few sources, uh, what do we know about the choreography? That it, it was based on athletic moves, obviously, it's based on the game of tennis. There were a lot of symmetrical figures. Uh, there was a kind of succession of arrested poses. Yeah, there was no fluidity. Again, the music is fluid, the movement is not. And it was danced on three-quarter point. Yeah, so not on point, not off point, but on this sort of more graceful and more graceful position. There is something to, I have to say, specifically about the costumes. Uh, and uh, 
you can see that the costumes are actually really not costumes at all. Uh, they, they are modern dress, M not just modern dress, it's everyday dress. Yeah, Nizhinsky is wearing a red tie, but otherwise they're all in white. They were wearing kind of tennis clothes of the time. And that was an extremely uh, innovative thing, yeah, to have that on the ballet stage. It was the ballet about 1913. It wasn't about some mythological past. So this very absence of costume, absence of historical distance was extremely striking. So you can see some backstage photographs. And this is the set again by Baxt. It's a reconstruction of the set by Baxt, which portrays this modern mansion and electric lights. Again, all the symbols of modernity. But the set is very dark. So if you imagine seeing white figures in that on that background, again, it looks very cinematic. Now let's see this reconstruction. I have to tell you that this is very poor quality video. That's the only thing I could get my hands on. Um, but uh, uh, it's just uh, still amazing to see how it works in practice. <laughs> Another little fragment that I would like to show you, uh, it's all three of them dancing and forming these symmetrical shapes, uh, including the climactic moment in Debussy's score, which actually coincides with a triple kiss. Mm -hmm. 
I find this mysterious ending with the empty stage with all of them disappearing uh, incredibly evocative. It reminds me of, I don't know, of Antonioni's films from the 60s or something like that. So what was the reaction to all that? Uh, well, here are some, some quotes. Uh, There's a quote from a review. The new art of which Monsieur Nijinsky is a prophet manages to turn even the insignificant to absurdity. What could be more ungraceful than the meaningless, pretentious contortions dreamt up by this nimble esthete? It is said that Monsieur Nijinsky's intention was to provide in this ballet an apologia uh, in plastic terms for the man of 1913. If this is so, we have nothing to be proud of. And Debussy himself, this fellow, Nijinsky, adds up triple crotchets with his feet, checks them on his arms, then suddenly half paralyzed, he stands crossly watching the music slip by. It's awful. It's even Dalcrosian. Remember Dalcros, the inventor of uh, rhythmic movement to music. For I consider Monsieur Dalcros as one of the greatest enemies of music. And you can imagine what havoc his method can create in the head of a young savage like Nijinsky. So, uh, yes, the ballet uh, was essentially a failure and it, it didn't quite have um, the response because it was completely overshadowed by what was to come, even greater crime against grace, uh, which was the Rite of Spring just a couple of weeks later. And uh, compared to that, this to me looks very graceful. But uh, I would like to underline again these important um, things about Je. It was the first ballet which was, was highlighting the idea of modernity through tennis, through the use of uh, electric lights, through the idea of an aeroplane, which I said uh, didn't make it, uh, th and also the idea of everyday uh, through the flannels and uh, this lack of uh, special costume. Uh, and the idea uh, seems to have been expressed by Romola Nijinsky quite well. Love becomes a game in the 20th century. So now we're going to fast forward to post-war time and meet the Diaghilev troupe in Monte Carlo at the famous casino in January 1924, where they performed a whole group of French pieces as part of the so-called Festival Francais, yeah, French festival. And this was because uh, after the various financial disasters, uh, Diaghilev managed to find a new patron in the Prince of Monaco, and he was actually hoping to establish himself there permanently and run this annual festival and do opera as well as ballet. So this uh, was um, the list of uh, all the things that they did in January 1924. They're all French, and you can see some, quite a lot of them are actually operas rather than ballets for the first time since I don't know when. Um, and uh, a lot of them are, um, the, the, the scores there are old 19th century or 18th, 18th century, but they are adapted by modern French composers, Poulenc, uh, Millot, Auric, um, and uh, Satie, and all of them belong to the group um, of apart from Satie, who was uh, um, their banner, I suppose, rather than a member, to this group of Les Six, yeah, the six composers that I've uh, 
have here in this picture. So the ballet uh, that is more important in this group was called Les Biches. Uh, and the title is once again untranslatable, has been variously translated as the hinds, the does, uh, the female deers, yeah, the darlings, and so on. So uh, it, it's about a group of uh, upper-class young women uh, who are incredibly attractive and wearing these glamorous clothes and just sort of partying together and engaging again in some kind of amorous games. As Poulenc said himself, Francis Poulenc, the composer, uh, there is no subject, just songs and dances. And the inspiration came from uh, French culture of the 18th century, from the so-called Fête Galante, uh, and this is a painting by Watteau, uh, representing these um, similar amorous pursuits, but in the 18th century. So this is a modern version of that. Uh, so Poulenc uh, actually made it into a song ballet. Uh, he found some, as he uh, described, the mildly obscene 18th century texts. Uh, the sets and costumes were by Marie Laurencin, um, who was a contemporary French um, designer and painter. And the choreography was by Branislava Nizhinska, Nizhinsky's sister. sister. He, she also danced in it, danced the hostess. And the ballet had spectacular success. So uh, you can see there is a, a, a photograph here. This is um, one of the characters who is wearing this incredibly provocative, again, page boy dress. And uh, you can see also that it was immortalized in a painting uh, at, at the same time. This is how exciting this all seemed. And uh, I would like to show you a reconstruction of this. You will see it has a very, uh, very unusual, I guess, design concept here. It's all pink and blue. And there is this huge blue sofa, which as some people described is actually one of the characters of the ballet because so many things happen on it. Well, let's li li listen and watch.
fun music, isn't it? It has everything in it as it was described from Bach to Offenbach. Yeah, or we can say from Mozart to Ragtime. And uh, it's uh, it's a kind of neoclassicism, yeah, with all the popular idioms mixed in. And it's very much based on what Stravinsky was doing at the time. So Poulenc and actually all of Lessis were uh, incredibly enamored with, with Stravinsky's concept, which was at the same time modern and and popular and commercially viable so they were all doing very similar things so uh, let us look at, the, at uh, another uh, another snatch from a different production uh, where you can actually have uh, hear that the ballet is sung and in that Poulenc is following the example of Lenos you know, Stravinsky's ballet from extract that I would would uh, like to show you it's called rag mazurka yeah so and in that name you you can see how this this merging of different things uh, is occurring yeah you can see you can hear the mazurka you can also hear a kind of ragtime and you can also see in the movements and the choreography of Nijinska this combination of traditional uh, dance uh, dance movements with these very modern dance movements that are you know being danced everywhere in the restaurants and the music hall on on various sort of cafe concert uh, stages and so on yeah so it's uh, uh, really a great alignment again between the concept of the music and the concept of choreography was this received? This was a greatest success. Uh, all those operas uh, by Guno, they didn't actually have that much success. And uh, Diaghilev never did opera ever again. But this ballet became successful. And here are some quotes from um, from the critics. Yeah, so one of them says, uh, talks about uh, Poulenc combining Bach and Offenbach, Gounod, Wagner and the Café Concert. Uh, from time to time, a gang of dissonant brass instruments interrupts a fugue in the best style as if to surprise the audience. It's a very curious sampling which becomes amusing once we have gotten used to it. Uh, 
And another one uh, writing very similar things, but about the choreography. Nijinska took advantage of classical figures, point work, pirouettes, entrechats, turns and lifts, and required only a slight change of balance, a barely perceptible deviation or twist to render upon the style abstract in its traditional perfection, the curt and sporty attitude of elegance that is fashionable today. Yeah, so again, you have this wonderful harmony uh, of music and movement. So uh, what can we say about, about this ballet as a whole? It really was portraying, as one critic says, women accustomed to Rolls Royce and pearl necklaces. It made contemporary references, for example, to Coco Chanel's little black dress in that very provocative costume that you've just seen. It was about chic, it was about charm, it was about decadence, it was very struvian skin in, uh, in the musical style. And as a whole, it could be encapsulated in one very good term invented by Lynn Garofola, which is lifestyle modernism. And this is really Diagoli found something new, something very exciting that uh, the public loved. So it was a new successful concept. So he decided to uh, go on with that. And uh, six months later, we have another example of this lifestyle modernism ballet. And this is a, uh, a ballet on the music by of Darius Miu. This is the great Picasso curtain for it, which is uh, probably the largest Picasso canvas in the world, made specifically for this um, ballet. So if in Le Biche you had this perfect harmony synthesis between all the arts, um, in this ballet you have slightly more edgy combination of music, dance and design. And I think the edginess comes from the Cubist set, which you can see on this picture, this um, uh, changing booth, which is, it looks a little bit crooked. So this is the, the ballet, which is called Le Train Bleu, uh, the blue train. And uh, Jean Cocteau, which had the idea for this, uh, came up with this bon mot. The first point about Le Train Bleu is that there is no blue train in it. This being the age of speed, it has already reached its destination and disembarked its passengers. So here uh, there were even more contemporary reference and even more involvement with the celebrity culture through the designer, of course, first of all, who was Coco Chanel. So the curtain was by Picasso, the cubist set was Henri Laurence, the choreography was one again, once again by Nijinska. And once again, this was a very successful ballet. And another bon mot that came from the critics that it was as difficult to get a ticket to the ballet as it was for the train itself. So Jean Cocteau, who actually became a kind of a, a artistic advisor to Diaghilev at the time, and their collaboration dates back actually to the ballet Parade in 1917, which I had already been talking about in another lecture. So uh, Cocteau suggested, again, a sport-centered plot. And here you can have a, a parallel with Je, is if, if, if you remember. After seeing the English dancer Patrick Healy Kay, uh, also known as Anton Dolin or Anton Dolan, um, practicing acrobatics in the interval. 
And there were further contemporary reference. For example, the golfer seems to have been uh, inspired by actually Prince of Wales playing golf. Yeah, so it, it's really uh, as high society as you can possibly imagine. And the figure of the tennis champion, the character of the tennis champion was based also on the contemporary French tennis star who is seen here in quite a balletic jump herself. So there are some backstage photos that you can see. Uh, another contemporary influence was the influence from exhibition dancers Marjorie Moss and uh, Georges Fontana, who were dancing in various uh, very upmarket hotels, such as the Savoy. And um, uh, the lead dancer, uh, who was at the time Diagida's favorite, Anton Dolin, yeah, he was... Um, he suggested to Diaghilev to go and see these dancers. So this this dance by this couple also uh, was imitated by the waltz in this particular ballet. So that, that's a whole host of contemporary connections. And a few words about Chanel and how did she uh, come to collaborate with Diaghilev. She actually, uh, this is very much a ballet about her scene because it's set in Deauville where the train uh, arrived to. And uh, this was the place where Chanel opened her first boutique, selling deluxe casual clothing for leisure and sport made from tricot. And this was the material only formerly used for men's underwear. So it was a very novel use of it. So in 1920, she met Stravinsky and he stayed for a while in her Paris residence. And if you want to know about that, you have to see the, the big feature film that was made about that. And she actually guaranteed against loss the 1920 production of The Rite of Spring. So it actually became one of the sponsors of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. And from 1923, she also started to contributing her costume designs to Diaghilev productions. This is one of, I think it's artificially colored, but uh, it's uh, lovely to see these costumes in color. Uh, now let us see how it uh, all, uh, what it all looks like when we're in movement. just a little vignette at the end, uh, I would like to present something slightly different because uh, there are quite a lot of these lifestyle modernist ballets and not everyone liked them. And some people thought that was it, this trend in, in the company was uh, kind of selling, uh, selling itself short and not as high art. It was a little bit too popular and possibly even vulgar. Certainly musically, uh, people didn't feel it was quite as inspiring. But I, I just wanted to, to show you how with the same kind of music, which is very melodious, 
and very easy to listen to. You can also do something else uh, with design that can be much more edgy. And this is the ballet which is called La Chatte. It's from 1927. Uh, it's a scenario after an Aesop fable about a, a cat maiden. Yeah, so a young man falls in love with a cat, prays to Aphrodite to transform her into a woman, but then she is tested, a mouse is released, and this cat woman is so distracted that uh, she runs after the mouse and is transformed back into a cat. And the unfortunate young man dies from disappointment. So it all ends with a future funeral march. <clears throat> Uh, the music is by Henri Sauguet, which is now like a second, third rank composer. But he's a, very much influenced by Satie, uh, but uh, less contrary in a sense, less slightly, maybe less interesting, but very, very pleasant to listen to. Uh, and the choreography is by Georges Balanchine, so that's uh, also a very beautiful um, thing to watch. But I think the most important thing about this ballet is its design. The design is astonishing. It was actually built as architecture uh, slash sculpture. It's by Naum Gabot and Antoine Pevzner. Yeah, so um, Gabot, um, who was a Russian Jewish emigre to France, uh, was already very famous by this... Um, uh, objects that he made which were neither architecture nor sculpture but something in the middle and he used all the most modern materials the exciting materials which were plastics yeah the transparent plastics now we hate plastics but at the time this was absolutely cutting edge and together with his brother he produced this quite astonishing futuristic design and futuristic costumes so uh, this this is a, a wonderful uh, picture of Alicia Nikitina as La Chatte in her most exciting transparent hat. Uh, so let's have a look at how it worked in practice. This is a little pas-de-deux.
you can see, yeah, the music, the music is very sweet. The dance is very beautiful and graceful, but uh, it's the design that is shocking and was shocking at the time. And this is how uh, one critic described it. The shining transparent armor worn by the dancers gave the ballet a heroic interplanetary quality, as if the little tragedy was taking place in a society of godlike pioneers on a newly subjugated star. Well, uh, let's draw some uh, conclusions. So in the course of uh, the 20 years that the Ballerus were present in Paris, Diaghilev engaged with very different aesthetic trends, from symbolism and impressionism to cutting-edge avant-garde and to more commercial forms of more moderate modernism. He went from using just French topics and French music to commissioning music from French composers and then uh, to uh, towards the use of whole teams of French collaborators. So in the 20s in particular, yeah, he had to use a very different set of patrons. His ties with Russia were almost completely severed and it was essentially a cosmopolitan company which uh, in a sense, could be more easily imitated. And this was the danger, that it was not unique anymore. And there was, for example, Ballet Suédois in Switzerland, which was a company that was doing similar uh, adventurous things with ballet. So it seems that to some extent Diaghilev was losing yeah, his unique face. Uh, he had not commissioned anything from Stravinsky for many years. Yeah, I mean, he, he commissioned the uh, Pulcinella. Uh, that was the last thing, and that wasn't quite a, a score. Yeah, it was just an arrangement, even though it was so incredibly influential. Um, and uh, so, although he hadn't commissioned from him, this neoclassical stroke popular trend was uh, actually stemming from Stravinsky. So Diaghilev both lured Stravinsky into more cosmopolitan vein and then followed him there. But personally, his inner circle was still almost exclusively Russian, as his relationship with his French collaborators remained more distant. They were never like, like a family, um, like with his Russian collaborations earlier on. And he still suffered from nostalgia. He even considered going to the USSR, which proved to be impossible. But uh, nostalgia for Russia, he also, I think, suffered from nostalgia for really great music, because ultimately you remember that he started as a musician, as a composer, and uh, the, all this music that he was he was now using from the composers of Lesis didn't quite fulfill this brief of greatness uh, that he um, that he was was inspired by. So, so he was looking for art with a message. And uh, this is a link to our next time, to our next lecture, where we will see what came out of these longings. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you again through this screen next time for our final installment. Thank you very much and bye.